Okay, well, let's pray. Ask God to meet us in, in his word this morning. Father, we pray for your grace to be upon us all now as we open up your word. And I, I pray for help. I feel a little sick. I pray that you give me clarity of mind and uh, help my voice. And Lord, meet all of us as we open up your holy word. And Lord Jesus, as we listen to what you preached at the Sermon on the Mount years ago. Open our hearts. We want to learn. We want to be strengthened. We want to grow. Come and do a mighty work now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. To set the stage for uh, for the passage we're going to be looking at, all through the Old Testament, from Genesis to Malachi, God promised that the day would come when he, the creator of the universe would come to this earth and be born as a baby, virgin birth. He would be here. And he would teach with power. He would work miracles. He would die on the cross. He would rise from the dead. He would bring God's kingdom to earth. All of this was talked about in the Old Testament, all through the Old Testament, Genesis to Malachi, describing the coming of God to earth in the person of the Messiah. And so all through the Old Testament, God's people waited and watched, and longed for this day, and hoped for this day, and prayed for this day, and read about this day, and anticipated this day, and finally all that waiting, watching, praying, longing, anticipation happened 2,000 years ago when Jesus was born on the earth, and everything that the Old Testament had prophesied about the Messiah came came to fruition. It was accomplished, massively confirming the Old Testament scriptures. But Jesus the Messiah... While he confirmed the Old Testament scriptures, he also taught that the Old Testament scriptures needed to be changed or that some of their commands in the Old Testament scriptures were to be followed differently or not to be followed, like the food laws, for example, or circumcision, those kinds of things. And so for Jesus' followers, this would raise the question. I mean, here, Jesus coming fulfilled all these Old Testament scriptures, but Jesus himself taught that some of these commands were to be changed now and not followed. So... Jesus knew his followers would raise the question, so what do we do with the Old Testament scriptures? Do we hold them? Do we follow them? What do we do with the Old Testament scriptures? That's what Jesus answers in the next passage in the Sermon on the Mount. So let's go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 5, and we'll see what Jesus says about the Old Testament. Verses 17 through 20. And if you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand high so we can pass one out to you. We want you all to be able to have a Bible you can look at. We're going to be looking at Matthew 5 and a couple of other passages as well this morning. Matthew 5, that's on page 809 in the Bibles that we're passing out. Now, let me illustrate it like this. Followers of Jesus, people who are trusting Jesus Christ, it's like we are, we're fishing. And we're, we're fishing because we, we want to catch more faith. We want to catch more love. We want to catch more steadfastness. We want to catch more encouragement. We want to experience more of God's presence. We're fishing for these things. And Jesus has given us the New Testament, a tackle box. My illustration called the New Testament. You open up this tackle box and here's all these lures. Anybody fish with lures? Okay. Here are all these lures in this tackle box named New Testament. So you, you try some of these lures and man, you're catching faith. You're catching steadfastness. You're catching love for your enemies and forgiveness and all these things you long for as you open up the New Testament tackle box and use these lures. You're receiving all these wonderful things you're longing for. But here's this other tackle box over here called the Old Testament. And you look at this tackle box, well, there's lures in there too. 
These are some different lures. Are we supposed to use those lures, or are we just supposed to use the New Testament tackle box lures? That's what Jesus answers here in Matthew chapter 5. How are we supposed to view the Old Testament? Look at what he says, verses 17 through 20, Matthew chapter 5. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Amazing passage here. I've had a great time working on this text this week. I've learned things I've just, I've, I've seen things I've never seen before. So what does Jesus do with the Old Testament? What does he do with it? Look at verse 17. It's right there. Do not think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Okay, when he talks about the law and the prophets, he's talking about the whole Old Testament, Genesis through Malachi. Sometimes the whole Old Testament is simply called the law. Sometimes it's called the law and the prophets, like here. Sometimes it's called the law of the prophets and the writings. But when Jesus talks about the law and the prophets, he's talking about the whole Old Testament. Genesis through Malachi. So he says he did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. He came to fulfill them. Now what does that mean? Okay, Some people think that it means that Jesus came and he perfectly obeyed the Old Testament law. He did that. Okay, But I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about here. He did that, but that's not what he means here. Others think what Jesus means is that he perfectly explained the meaning of the Old Testament law. And he did that too. But I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about here. The reason I say that is because of verse 18. One of the best ways to do Bible study, if you want to understand what verse 17 means, you can read the verses before, the verses after, because you'll find clues. And in verse 18, notice it starts with the word for which shows that here Jesus is giving the reason for why we can know he came to fulfill the law. So he's going to be explaining more about that. So look at what he says, verse 18. For, here's the reason, truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until, until what? Until all is accomplished. So here's the deal. The Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi, the Law and the Prophets, its whole orientation was focusing on looking at what God's going to do, promising what God's going to do in the coming of the Messiah. It's it's a book of promise. Here's what's going to happen in the future. And what Jesus says he comes to do is he comes and he fulfills all that God promised to do. All these things that were anticipated, the Messiah, everything else, Jesus says, they're all going to happen. I'm going to bring them all about. So when Jesus says he came to fulfill, it's not in this passage that he perfectly obeyed, although he did, very important, and it's not that he perfectly explained, although he did, it's that he 
perfectly fulfills everything that was promised in the Old Testament. Now, to show you that's what this word fulfill means, look at some scriptures. Look at, these are all in the beginning of Matthew. Look at Matthew chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. I'm going to give you a couple illustrations so you, so you get this. This is so important. Matthew 1, this is to the left a little ways, verses 22 and 23. Matthew's just told us about the virgin birth, and he says, all this took place to fulfill, same word, what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. So Jesus fulfilled that prophecy right there. Look at chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. This is where Mary and Joseph, Mary take, Joseph takes Mary and Jesus down to Egypt to escape from Herod. Verse 14, chapter 2, he rose, took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill, same word, what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Look at chapter 2, verse 17. Remember when all the male children, the very young ones, were killed? Verse 17. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Then one more, verse 23, chapter 2. He went, Jesus went, and lived in a city called Nazareth. That what was spoken by the prophets, I'm sorry, this is speaking of Joseph, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, he, Jesus, shall be called a Nazarene. So the Old Testament was full of promise of all these wonderful things that God was going to do. And when Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill, he's saying everything that the Old Testament law pointed to, pointing ahead to the future, here's what's going to happen. Everything the Old Testament pointed to, every single thing, Jesus fulfills. There's a couple different ways that he does this. Let me give you some examples. Let's think about some Old Testament commands. Take the, the Old Testament command about the Passover. Okay, Jesus perfectly fulfills the Old Testament command to Passover, not by telling us to keep the Passover, but by explaining what it meant and showing how he fulfilled it and how he changed the Passover into communion, right? Remember what the Passover was? Israel was in Egypt, slaves for hundreds of years. And uh, God raised up Moses to set Israel free. Remember Moses, let my people go to Pharaoh. And God changed Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh was hard. Pharaoh was stubborn. God brought signs and wonders. And finally, God was going to have the firstborn of every family killed. Remember the story? In order to persuade Pharaoh to let Israel go. Every firstborn in every family in the whole area was going to be killed unless they did what? They killed a lamb, took the lamb's blood, smeared it on the doorposts of the house, and every household that had a lamb's blood smeared on the doorposts, the angel of death would pass over that house and not kill that firstborn son. But every house that did not have the blood of a lamb over it would have the firstborn son killed. And so to commemorate, well, so then that happened, and then Pharaoh said, okay, go, and then they escaped, and you know the whole story. But every year, Israel would have the, the Passover Feast of Passover Supper. They would commemorate what took place with the Passover. Now, Jesus took that command. Remember the, the final Passover meal that he had with his disciples? He celebrated the Passover with his disciples the night before he was going to be betrayed. And what did he say? He changed it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. 
do this in remembrance of me. So the, the Old Testament Passover was pointing ahead to what Jesus would do the blood of the lamb smeared on the doorpost so that God's wrath would pass over. That's what happens to us when we put our trust in what Jesus has accomplished by shedding his blood on the cross. So Passover was pointing towards that. Jesus said, it's fulfilled now. Now we celebrate what's happened with communion. So that's how Jesus fulfilled that command by talking about what it pointed to. He fulfilled it and here's the change that takes place because of it. Does that make sense? Okay. Let's take another example of a command. How about the command like, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself? Jesus fulfilled that command in a different way. He didn't change that one, right? That command pointed ahead to what the Messiah's people would be transformed into, how they would be living. By the work of the cross and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, everyone who trusts Jesus Christ has their heart changed. So we love God, not perfectly, But we love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We love knowing God in the person of Jesus more than anything. And when his love is poured into our hearts, we love our neighbor as ourselves. We care for people. We serve people. We meet people's needs. And so Jesus fulfilled that command by affirming it. It was pointing ahead to what the Messiah's people would be transformed into. And Jesus said, this is what you're going to be transformed into. So do this. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's how he fulfilled that command. So some commands he fulfilled by changing them, like the food laws, Passover. Other commands he fulfills by affirming them, like that one. Okay, two more examples. How about Old Testament prophecies? Some prophecies were fulfilled by what he did did 2,000 years ago. Born of a virgin, died on the cross, rose from the dead, poured out the Holy Spirit. All these things the Old Testament promised the Messiah would do, he did. So many of the prophecies have already been fulfilled. Some are still to be fulfilled, like saving men and women from every nation, tongue, and tribe. The final great tribulation that's going to be poured out. All those who've persisted in rebelling against God are going to be judged permanently, eternally in hell. God's redeemed are going to be gathered together, enter into the new heavens and the new earth. We'll have every tear wiped from our eyes. No more mourning, no more crying, no more death in the presence of God forever, like Ian was talking about and like we, some of the worship songs were talking about. So see, Jesus did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. He took everything from Genesis to Malachi, everything that the Old Testament was pointing towards, and he is the fulfillment of every single part of it. He fulfills it all. So, how should we view the Old Testament then? Here we are as followers. How should we view the Old Testament? He answers that in verses 18 and 19. Start with verse 18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Okay, what's an iota and what's a dot? Okay, see on the left... That's an iota. That's the smallest Hebrew letter. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. The smallest Hebrew letter is the letter Yod, Iotha. Okay? It's right there like the word Yahweh for God. The first letter of Yahweh is this little letter. So not even an iota, not even the smallest little letter won't be fulfilled. And then the dot, scholars probably think this is what the dot means. See that little flip up like the, like, you know, where, the, where the red circle is? Okay, if that was not there, that letter T would be the letter H. But because that little flip-up is there, that's the letter T. 
And the point is not even the smallest letter, not even the smallest little flip up of a letter that, that makes a difference of what it means. Every single part of the Old Testament is going to be fulfilled. In other words, every single part of what's in Genesis through Malachi is important for us. That's what he's saying. Every single part will be accomplished. It'll be fulfilled in Jesus. So then verse 19, this is a shocking verse. Here's what the implication of that is. If not even an iota, not even a dot of the Old Testament, I mean, if every iota, every dot is going to be fulfilled, if every part of it is meaningful, here's what that means for us. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, notice one thing here. What's at stake in this passage is not whether you're in the kingdom or out of the kingdom. Did you catch what's at stake here in this passage? It's whether you're great in the kingdom or least in the kingdom. So all the people talked about in this verse are in the kingdom. Did you catch that? Hello, church. Did you catch that? Okay. So this is not whether you're in or out. This is whether you're in and you're great or you're in and you're least. That's what's at stake here in this passage. Did you all catch that? Just tell me yes. I feel like I can move ahead. Okay, very important. So what's, what determines whether you're great in the kingdom or least in the kingdom is how you respond to the Old Testament commands as interpreted, as explained, as fulfilled, as affirmed, as changed maybe by Jesus. Okay, now let me give you some illustrations. Let's say, for example, take, um, take the Passover command, which we already talked about earlier. Let's say that somebody says, okay, Passover, Shmassover, you know, this is Old Testament stuff. You know, I'm not an Old Testament guy. I'm a New Testament guy. I'm into communion. This Passover stuff, I don't need to worry about that. And so they never read the Passover story. They never worship Jesus as revealed in the Passover story. They never let the truth of the Passover story fill out their understanding of what happened on the cross. They never let the truth of the Passover fill out what the meaning of communion is. They just keep that part of it. That's Old Testament stuff. That person will not be as strong, as mature, as established in the faith, as resilient against temptations, as deep in love for Christ as they could have been had they taken those Passover passages and worshipped Jesus in them. Let the meaning of those passages fill out their understanding of the cross and what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Letting the truth of the Passover fill out the meaning of what what communion stands for. Because if somebody will do that, if you will take those Passover commands and embrace them and love them and read them and ponder them, you will be stronger, you'll be more established, you will be greater in the kingdom. Does that make sense? Okay? Another example. This this last week, uh, I was talking to Jan about, remember the book of Ruth? Um, there's Old Testament commands that said if you've got a barley field and you're harvesting your barley field, do you harvest all the barley field? No, you, you leave the corners, you leave the edges. For who? For the poor. Okay, so when you've got a barley field, you know, harvest most of it, but like, don't harvest every single stalk of barley. Leave a bunch out there. Remember the story of Ruth, because Ruth was able to, to gather barley that way. Okay, so if somebody just says, you know, that's Old Testament stuff. All these laws about barley field. I don't mess, I don't read that. I don't mess with that. And they never let that, that prescription about how to deal with the barley field stir their heart about caring for the poor. They never let that passage deepen them in thinking about what are some ways that maybe I could be more generous to the poor? 
What are some of the ways that I'm like keeping everything to myself, like I'm gathering all my barley? And they never let the passage deepen their care for the poor, deepen their love for the poor, think and explore ways they can be more generous to the poor. The person who ignores those passages is going to be weaker in their care for the poor than somebody who lets those passages deeply impact their hearts. Does that make sense? Okay? I hope so. So Jesus is saying, every part of the Old Testament has meaning for us today. When we understand it as explained by him, commands, some were affirmed, some were changed, prophecies, stories, when we understand that the whole Old Testament is explained by Jesus, he wants us to love the Old Testament. He wants us to read the Old Testament. He wants us to talk with each other about the Old Testament, to memorize the Old Testament, to let the Old Testament deeply impact our hearts because every part of it is given by God for us today. Okay, now at this point, I think Jesus anticipates that some of his listeners could terribly misunderstand what he has just said. Because if Jesus said, think about that culture, if he said, the the Old Testament is so important, I want you to hold to it, I want you to cling to it, I want you to follow it, some of his listeners could have thought, oh, he's telling us to be like the scribes and the Pharisees. Right? Remember who the scribes and Pharisees were? Jewish religious leaders. And who in that culture was seen as following the Old Testament to the very letter? Who was that? It's the scribes and Pharisees. So Jesus knows at this point, his listeners could be thinking, okay, Jesus, you're calling us to to be like the scribes and the Pharisees. That's not what he was saying at all. Look at what he says in verse 20. It would have stunned his listeners. He says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This this would have been shocking. He's saying the scribes and Pharisees, they're not great in the kingdom of heaven. The scribes and the Pharisees aren't even least in the kingdom of heaven. The scribes and the Pharisees aren't even in the kingdom of heaven. Do you see how he's saying that here? So they're absolutely stunning to his listeners. Now, why aren't they in the kingdom? Well, it's because, as we're going to see in the rest of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus explains that the scribes and Pharisees had terribly distorted the Old Testament message, had totally missed the Old Testament message. I mean, they were quoting from it, they were memorizing it, they were teaching it, and they had totally missed it. They had totally missed the Old Testament message in its focus on the heart, trusting God, loving God, loving people. They had totally ignored that part, and they had turned it into a focus on outside actions. Okay, walking a certain number of paces on the Sabbath day, certain things you do and don't do, washing your hands, all these little ceremonies that they'd kind of developed that they thought were going to be helping them be even more obedient to the Old Testament, and they'd missed the whole heart issue. And so Jesus says this, listen, I'm encouraging you to love the Old Testament. As I explain the Old Testament, I'm encouraging you to do that. But don't think I'm telling you, be like the scribes and Pharisees, because they have totally missed it. It's not what I'm saying at all. In fact, your righteousness, if you want to be in the kingdom, if you want to know you're in the kingdom, your righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. Because the scribes, how much righteousness do the scribes and Pharisees have? None. None. They had no righteousness. Because they they didn't love God, they didn't know God, they weren't loving people, they were just strutting their stuff, they were just showing how righteous they were, they were just trying to impress all the people, they wanted like applause and big old standing ovations when they'd come into the room, oh you're righteous, you're righteous, yes I am, yes I am, okay? 
That was their whole motivation. The scribes and Pharisees weren't righteous at all. Our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees if we're going to be in the kingdom. Now, there's a huge way you can misunderstand that. You could think, okay, I've, I've got to start being really good now. I'm going to start being righteous. Willpower, self-effort, start being good. I'm going to clean up my language. I'm going to, all these different things. That's not what Jesus means at all. How do you get righteous? Let me remind you. He's already told us in the Sermon on the Mount. You go back to the very first beatitude. Remember? What's the first beatitude? Blessed are the... Oh, I, I love this. I love this. And so the poor in spirit are those who realize what? They have no righteousness. That's who the poor in spirit are. Don't you love this? So the poor in spirit, the very first sentence in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, all of you who have no righteousness, you'll be blessed if you will come to me and admit that you're poor in spirit. Come to me and say, I have no righteousness of my own. Forgive me. I've been rebellious against you. I've been cold towards you. I've just shunned you. I've tried to be a good person without any heart for you. And I have no righteousness. And you look to Jesus and you say, forgive me. Here I am. I bring nothing of righteousness to the table, nothing of goodness to the table. I'm here as a man who is poor in spirit. I am morally bankrupt and penniless. And I look to you as my Savior. You died on the cross to pay for me, my sin. And by your resurrection power, you will change me. And by the outpouring of your Holy Spirit, you will cause righteousness to bloom in me and to to blossom in me. And so I trust you, Jesus. I hear I am poor in spirit. Help me. And when you do that, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit for what? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Because his power goes to work in you and you start to grow in righteousness. We're never going to become perfectly righteous this side of heaven. But when you put your trust in Jesus Christ, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit will make you grow in heart and life righteousness. So, how do you have righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees? By trying really hard to be a good person on your own? Thank you. A little more confidence, but thank you. The answer is no. It's by coming to Jesus Christ, poor in spirit, Help me. I have no righteousness. Change me. And he will change you. And as as you see him changing you, as you see righteousness growing in your life, you'll know, okay, that shows I'm trusting him. That shows I'm in the kingdom. So Jesus' main point here in this passage is, how should we respond to the Old Testament? And his answer is, as explained by Jesus, love it. Embrace it. Cherish it. Memorize it. Study it. Share it. Feed on it. Worship with it. That's what he's calling us to do. Okay. Any questions about this? And then I've got some closing thoughts about how we're going to live this out. What questions does this raise in your mind? It's a huge topic. Maria, go ahead. Here's a mic. No silly questions. No silly questions. I mean, it won't be silly. That's what I mean. Go ahead. Yeah. Good question. So there's parts of the Old Testament where I'm like, huh? Yeah. What, what am I supposed to do with this? Yes. That's a really, really good question. Yeah, Let me give two answers to it, okay? And then maybe somebody else can pitch in too. Um, first of all, like 
Like when the book of Numbers gives long lists of the, 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 the census taken of Israel, right? There's a reason why God wanted that written for Israel to read and for us to read. Um, I think it's 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says that the, all the Old Testament scriptures were written for us. Or 2 Timothy 3.16 says most of the scriptures are inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof. For... No, no, it's not what it says, okay? So you're thinking, oh my gosh, okay. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God. Wait, we'll take that off the tape, okay? <laughs> Just in case. All scripture is inspired by God, even those lists. So they are written for our help today. That's the easy part to answer. The harder part is, how do they help us? And um, I think the ESV Study Bible has some thoughts in terms of the, the benefit we can have from understanding that all everybody was counted and numbered. Um, one a quick example of how this impacted me, I can't think of the passage in the Old Testament, but there's a place where Israel's bringing these offerings, and it's the exact same combination. It's, it's 26 Hebrew words repeated like 20 times in one chapter. It's like, why do I need to read these? It's the exact same thing repeated 20 times. And what struck me as I was praying about it and pondering it is that Every single offering that was brought to God, even though it was the same as number one, number two, number three, every single one was important to God. And so every single offering you bring to the Lord of your life is meaningful to Him. So every single part is important for us today. And we need to pray and study and think about what's the meaning of this? Why is this important for us? Because it is. Okay? Orion. I just have two questions. Yeah. Um, in verse, so it's, uh, the fifth chapter, verse 19 of Matthew. Yes. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And that's not the whole verse, but that's the yeah. part I wanted to ask about. So is that referring to the Ten Commandments or the entire law and the prophets, the whole uh, Old Testament? It's a really good question. I think it's referring to the whole Old Testament. But... Verse 18, or verses 17 and 18, Jesus has just said that he fulfills the whole Old Testament. Okay? So some commands he fulfills by affirming them. Other commands he fulfills by saying, here's what they pointed to, and this is why they're changed. Okay? So every command in the Old Testament, as explained by Jesus, we love, we cherish, we follow. Does that help? that help? Is it, is that, do you buy it? Is that what he's saying here? Well, I, I, think it's a, I think it could be a very long conversation on that one, but I just wanted to get some idea of what... Is there a specific, like a, a specific... It kind of leads into my next question, okay. which is about the Sabbath. Good question. It seems like, as Christians, I think pretty much all of us who really consider ourselves Christians, we'd be, you know, we, we feel like we should keep all the commandments, but when it comes to the Sabbath, it's sort of, uh, you know, like, well, yeah, it's kind of relaxing that one. Yes. When it comes to the Sabbath, it's, it's sort of like that one's sort of um, it's hard to hard to understand. I know about Galatians and Colossians and what Paul says about it. Yes. And Jesus himself, see, I think this is a difference because Jesus affirms the command about not murdering, but Jesus changes the Sabbath. If you read some of those passages, he's Lord of the Sabbath. And it's changed. And so here's two different commands that Jesus treats differently. 
And that's why we are different about the Sabbath than we are about the command about murder. It's trying to be consistent here, okay? There's reasons for the Sabbath in the Old Testament on Saturday. And, uh, and again, I think that, the, that, that we are now worshiping on the first day, Resurrection Day. But I think it's changed. Again, and Christians disagree on exactly what all this means for what the Sabbath means or doesn't mean. Okay? My understanding, like I said, it's going to be a long answer. But the question is, how did Jesus teach about murder, for example? How did he teach about the Sabbath? That's the question. And whatever he taught about it, we cling to. Okay? I hope that's helpful. Is everybody totally confused now, or does that shine some, shed any light on it, or does that just like turn the light off? Lynn, go ahead. Good. But I see another law at work in For in my inner being I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within the members of my body. Skip forward to chapter eight. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, for what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemns sin in sinful men in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. Was there like a... That, that's a lot of ground you just covered. What's, there's something on your heart, so I want to hear what that is. Yes. Um, and, and it's not because of our own doing we can't do it. Our sinful nature prohibits that. Right. Um, but through Jesus, we are righteous before God. Yes, so see if this is what you're saying. Just go and understand this. The word righteousness is used in at least two ways in the, in the Bible. And when you put your trust in Jesus Christ, like Genesis 15:6, part of the Old Testament, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So the moment Abraham put his trust in God, the moment you put your trust in Jesus Christ, you are immediately clothed with Jesus' perfect moral righteousness and God sees you as being perfectly morally blameless. It's an amazing thing. It's 100% pure, perfect righteousness. That's one way the word is used. Crucial. Okay? Another way that it's used is in, I think, Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, where our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. In Matthew's gospel, the word righteous refers to our actual righteousness, okay, which will never be perfect in this life, okay, will never be morally perfect in this life, and we don't, the basis for our acceptance from God is not that, 
Okay, it's Jesus' righteousness clothing us. But still, when we put our trust in Jesus, we are changed and we grow in being actually righteous. Okay, so both of those are true. We're saved on the basis of this one, Jesus giving us the gift of righteousness. We're not saved on the basis of this one. This one comes from this one. Okay? Are you guys following me at all? Anyway, maybe I'm just my mind's not working very well. So does that help with what you were just asking about? Yes. He, he should, we should have never tried to be righteous as the Pharisees have. Okay, I would agree with most of what you said. This is a place where people who love Jesus can maybe disagree. Okay, but no, there's no substantial disagreement here. Um, I'm not sure I would say that we should never try. The way we try, though, is completely different than how the scribes and Pharisees tried. The way we try is we come to the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And we say, I'm poor in spirit. I have no righteousness of my own. I'm totally condemned by the law. I agree with you completely there. Based on the law, I'm never going to be in. Okay? Totally right. And the moment I put my trust in Jesus, the kingdom of heaven is mine. So here I am, poor in spirit, trusting in Jesus. It's mine because I'm clothed in Jesus' perfect, moral, blameless righteousness. Okay? Now, when I do that, though, he changes my heart. And I... From faith, relying on the Spirit, fight the fight of faith. I obey Christ. I fight against temptation. I, I buffet my body and make it my slave, Paul says. There's effort talk here. Faith-based efforts, spirit-dependent efforts, but effort nonetheless that counts, not as the basis of salvation, but it glorifies Christ. It's the life of faith. It honors him. And I think in 520, I think that's the kind of righteousness Jesus is talking about. Scribes and Pharisees had no righteousness. We need to be changed. And when we're changed, it's not the basis by which we're in heaven, but that shows that we have the faith which is the basis by which we're in heaven. Okay? Glassy-eyed. All right? Anyway, it was awesome. All right? This, this, is, just, this is really great here. But, but it's really important... Um, my understanding is that verse 20 is talking about actual righteousness that comes by faith, by the Spirit. It's not the basis of our salvation, but it assures us that we're in the kingdom. Life change, 1 John, many passages show that it's not perfect. We're never perfect this side of heaven, but life change assures us that we've experienced the justification that comes by faith alone. We can talk more if you want to. Okay, we've got to stop. Here's my, my closing words here. What does this mean for us? Jesus' point in this passage is to have us love the Old Testament as explained by him. Memorize it, study it, think about it, ponder it, talk it, preach it, worship with it, pray over it. That's what he wants us to have. That's what I want to call you to do too. But now, think about it like this. Let's just, let's, we talk about Old Testament, New Testament. Let's just think about the Bible at this point, okay? Too many Christians 
You're fishing for, you want more faith, you want more strength, you want more comfort, you want more love, you want more power over temptation. And the tackle box of the New Testament and the tackle box of the Old Testament is closed. You're trying to grow in these things and you don't read the Bible. I don't think I can overstate this. You've got to be consistent in times of meditating on the Word of God, studying the Word of God, reading the Word of God. Listen, if you're not growing in that, you will be very weak and you're in a very vulnerable place spiritually. You need to open up the tackle box. Use the lure of the, of the New Testament. Use the lures of the Old Testament. You'll grow in strength, steadfastness, faith, forgiveness of others, closeness to God, outpourings of the Holy Spirit. But don't keep the tackle boxes closed. Open the tackle boxes up and use them. So if you're, if you're not growing in regular times of meditating on God's Word, reading God's Word, you've got to, you've got to grow here. And again, not by your own self-will and self-effort, but come before the Lord Jesus and say, help me. Have others pray for you and say, help me. Because you've got to have that going or you won't be growing and you're in a vulnerable place. And Jesus' point in this passage is, don't just use the tackle box from the New Testament. Use the Old Testament tackle box as well. You'll catch even more faith, even more strength, even more comfort. Okay, let's stand together. Here's what I want to pray over us. I just want to pray for those of us here who um, you're not in the you're not in the Word on a regular basis. And listen, Jesus will help you with that. Ask Him for help. Don't just rely on your willpower or your self-effort. That's not the way to do it. Come to Him, poor in spirit. Say, "Help me. I'm, I'm not." growing in this area. I need you. And listen, he will meet you. He will help you. He will strengthen you. He will. So Father, I pray for those of us here right now, maybe feeling a little bit discouraged about after this message because they know they're, they're, they're not getting time in the word. Thank you that you will help them. Thank you that you love them. Thank you that you will give them everything that they need. So, Lord, meet them. Change their hearts. Break down the barriers. Show them how they can do this in a way that's life-giving and that's growing. And I pray, Lord, that we here at Mercy Hill Church, we would have both tackle boxes open. We'd be catching faith, catching love, catching peace, catching joy, catching steadfastness, catching courage, outpourings of your Spirit, all the things we need because we're meditating on your word day and night, New Testament and Old Testament. So I pray, Lord, that you would do that in us for the glory of your name. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.